Welcome to Agriculture in North Carolina. Hello, farmers and friends. I'm Dan Miller. This program is all about our state's largest industry. That's agriculture. Now that the turkey's all gobbled up, it's time to deck the halls. And I'd like to echo North Carolina Commissioner of Agriculture Troxler in encouraging you to buy a North Carolina-grown live Christmas tree. Frazier firs, in my humble opinion, make the best Christmas trees. North Carolina tree farmers produce over 20% of the Christmas trees in the United States and are second only to Oregon in production. A 19-foot Fraser fir from Ash County arrived at the White House to serve as the official Christmas tree. This is the 15th time North Carolina has provided the White House Christmas tree, surpassing all other states in this 58-year tradition. Ag and NC is made possible by Ag Carolina Farm Credit. First Choice Insurance Partners, and the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Got to be NC. Find links to those folks on our website at agandnc.com. Now we're joined by Jeff Turner, COO of Murphy Family Ventures and member of the North Carolina Board of Ag. Jeff, how are things in D.C.? I got to tell you, the original D.C. is faring fairly well. You know, we had a little rain over the weekend and we needed some moisture think harvest time is going well and certainly all the corn is in and most of the beans by now are about harvested so getting ready to start looking for 2024 the most asked question that i've had in the last two weeks is did jeff put any venison in the freezer uh well the answer to the question is yes but not from the one that we were looking for. Those who uh, are frequent listeners of the program might remember Jeff did the program a couple weeks ago from a stump as they were tracking a buck that his son shot. That his son shot. Well, after about three hours uh, of looking and searching, the blood ran out and uh, no more blood. Quick and Josh up. said, Dad, I believe our deer was raptured. So- <laughs> I looked up. He was not in a tree, so he couldn't hide. It's hard to hide. So so I'm going with his plan. He was taken up. It's likely that somebody else might have intervened. Thank goodness uh, we've been spared here in NC, but big increase in HPIA cases in other states. Nearly 5.8 million birds affected by the highly pathogenic avian influenza in November. Substantial increase from October. States most heavily impacted by the outbreak include Minnesota, Iowa, Ohio, and Oregon. China's Customs Administration had imposed restrictions on poultry shipments from numerous American states during the previous outbreak. These restrictions remained in place even though the cases have subsided. However, China recently lifted restrictions on poultry imports from specific states, including North Carolina. Bans on shipments from 31 other states still remain in effect. It's a good thing. And one of the biggest export items in the poultry industry to China is paws. I would call them something else, but they call them paws. Chicken feet. A delicacy, evidently, or is at least considered that, we ship a lot of chicken paws to China out of North Carolina. Hmm, very interesting. They consider cricket protein, and cricket protein apparently is quite good, but uh, I've tried it. It's not a regular part of my diet. I'm partial to pork chop as my protein, <laughs> or, ch- or chicken, well, speaking or of, turkey. <laughs> speaking of pork chop... I read the following quiz in a USA Today this week. It's made its way to national media. What can grow five feet long, 400 pounds, and is one of the most destructive invasive species in the United States? Their answer was wild hogs, otherwise known as feral swine. According to the USDA, feral hogs can cause approximately $2.5 billion in agricultural damages each year. According to the USDA, their population has grown to more than 9 million 
NCDA reports that between January 1st and the 19th of this year, 1,612 feral swine were killed and subsequently sampled to monitor for disease. North Carolina has recently been ranked as the seventh worst feral hog problem in the country. According to state officials, there's not a solid estimate of how many free-roaming, intelligent, disease-carrying animals there are in North Carolina. Well, they certainly are a problem, and they're a problem in a lot of different ways. First off, from a biosecurity standpoint, and you think about the number of animals that are in confinement in North Carolina that are protected from those sorts of risks, you know, you've got the feral hogs roaming the, the, the woods and they're in the field and they're around the buildings. And if they start to shed virus, they can cause an awful, awful lot of problems for the commercial herd. That could be more destructive than the physical destruction that you spoke of. And uh, a hog just has a tremendous snout and the amount of damage that they can do with, with just rooting around with that snout is absolutely amazing. Very, very destructive tool. They're rooting around for what? Tender roots? Well, I mean, what? anything to eat. R- roots, acorns, nuts. I mean, number one, if you're 400 pounds, you do have to take a pretty good amount of calories in every day. And when you don't know where your next meal's coming from, yeah, you're looking for it all the time. And, and they can be aggressive. I, I read somewhere one time that uh, a feral hog, they, they've been clocked at like 30 miles an hour running. And, uh, and in fact, there's a there's an entire program of trying to figure out how do you capture and, and remove these animals. Led by strong tobacco sales, Wilson County's estimated gross income from sales of farming products bounced back to $159.4 million last year. Norman Harrells, director of the Wilson County Cooperative Extension Office, he delivered numbers to 120 attendees at the annual Farm Week celebration. Overall sales from farm products were up $29 million from two years ago. Tobacco, according to Harold, still cornerstone for the farming economy in Wilson County, the number one crop in Wilson County displacing sweet potatoes. Harold estimates tobacco yield at 2,630 pounds per acre in Wilson County. Wow. Snapshot of one county in eastern North Carolina. That's really good. You know, normally we used to say 2,000 pounds or 2,200 pounds. So 2,600 pounds is extraordinary. Sweet potatoes had been the number one crop, but he said sweet potatoes overplanted and prices went down. It's all about price. Yeah, I mean, you said a number of times on the program, as have the commissioner, the uh, cure for high prices is... It's high prices. <laughs> It'll fix itself every time. We're just natured that way. At that conference in Wilson, Gary Fox, the dean of College of Agriculture and Life Sciences at NC State University, was the keynote speaker, and he'll be our guest next week on the program. Dean Fox is a good guy. He's a good man. I'm glad we've got him over at the School of Ag and Life Science. Follow-up story on a couple of birds who are on death row. It's been one year since (laughs) Chocolate and Chip, the 2022 National Turkeys, arrived in North Carolina at NC State University. They're living the best lives ever after receiving a Thanksgiving pardon from the president. The white-feathered toms have made themselves quite at home at the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences, Tally Turkey Education Unit. They're ambassadors for turkeys for the state. Chocolate and Chip have thrilled school children and college students alike over the last 12 months, allowing them to observe their personalities and behavior. And then one side note, NC State University produces about one-third of all poultry science graduates in the United States and has a 95% job placement rate. Wow. I mean, we're the number one poultry producer in the nation. And the Tally Institute is for my good friend Wendell Tally. It was the last independent turkey producer in the state of North Carolina. Ah, from where? I think Union County. How about that? 
And uh, Wendell and I served on a, on the Board of Agriculture together years ago. When I first went on in 1993, Wendell Talley was on the board. <laughs> when buildings are starting to be named after your peers, what does that tell you? I have some old peers. <laughs> <laughs> I was born at an early age. and Yes, right. A little fortunate. I I was able to, to be involved at a fairly young age in some of these things, so I still think I'm young. Hey, coming up on today's program, we're going to check in with this year's soybean harvest. That's going to be Rachel, what I will call the soybean queen of North Carolina. She's going to tell us all about what's going on with soybeans in 2023, and I think she's got some great news. NC State Soybean Extension Specialist, Dr. Rachel Van, coming up in just a moment on Ag and NC. Hey, thanks to our friends April and BG at the Farmers Connection. If you've not put a copy in your hands, I highly recommend it. Farmers Connection is a newsprint magazine with information and ads from dealers and suppliers right here in North Carolina. Check out the used equipment prices from dealers like Mark Chesson and Sons in Williamston, Caps Trailer in Dover, Acock Tractor in Goldsboro, Nash Equipment in Burgaw, Atlantic and Southern Equipment in Goldsboro and Williamston, and of course, Premier Equipment in Rocky Mount, Enfield, Washington and Aden. The Farmer's Connection, online and available at independent farm equipment dealers all over North Carolina. You're listening to Agriculture in North Carolina on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. Thanks in part to Donna Byram with First Choice Insurance Partners. Call Donna at 252-792-1189. Let her protect your yield so you can stay in the field. Dr. Rachel Van is the North Carolina Soybean Extension Specialist, and she joins us from time to time in the program near the end of the soybean season, so we thought we'd reach out. The Soybean Queen, welcome. Glad to be here. Well, Rachel, tell us, we've had a good season so far. It appears that we've got a good crop and the prices were well. Give us an overview of what you think the North Carolina crop's going to be when it's all said and done. You know, I um, would describe the 2023 soybean season as I often do in one word, which is resiliency. I think we're going to end up cutting close to record on average across the state. So probably 38, 39 bushels per acre. That's what the NCDA um, is projecting. And I'll just say I think that's remarkable considering that we had some pretty significant stresses throughout the soybean season. First of all, it was a very cool and wet spring. That hurt our early planted soybeans in the east, um, and those are the soybeans that typically yield the highest across the state. That weather just led to less vegetative growth early in the season, and I don't think our early planted beans are at their max yield potential like you might see in other years because of that cool, wet spring. Then as the season progressed, we had a considerable amount of stress on our double crop beans from dry weather in August and September. That dry weather was good for harvest conditions, admittedly. But I'll say despite, you know, several stress points in the season that were pretty significant, I think it's remarkable that we're going to cut close to record in North Carolina. And that's why I think it's just important to highlight the resiliency of soybeans and also the more aggressive management strategies that our farmers are using to achieve those yields. We're seeing farmers using more early maturing varieties. Do you have any problem with seed damage this year? or? Yeah, so we definitely are seeing a shift to the use of earlier maturing varieties, and that's been happening in the Blacklands and the Northeast for many years, but we're seeing the shift across the whole eastern part of the state and the western part of the state now. 
there's a variety of advantages associated with that shift, and then there can also be some disadvantages in certain years, one of those being adverse seed quality issues when we see a lot of rain and heavy temperatures when those earlier maturing varieties are coming into physiological maturity. This year, we had excellent seed quality, and that's primarily driven by the fact that we had a very dry fall, which didn't allow moisture to intensify some of the seed quality issues that we saw in years like 18, 19. And actually, I would say from a seed quality perspective, we've had three years in a row that were relatively dry during harvest. And so we haven't seen the seed quality issues that we have seen in some years. And that's a great thing for quality and capitalizing on the premiums that are associated with early delivery. Much problem with stem canker this year? Yeah, I will say we got a few more reports about stem canker than we have in the past. And I think some of our dry conditions can intensify the stem canker issue, which is why we saw a little bit more of that in 23. I think for growers that have problems with stem canker, we're going to have to increasingly be paying attention to that disease and relying on genetic resistance to help us manage stem canker. My friends in the Blacklands talked about some really high yields, even record yields this year. What what do you think the record is going to be? So I will tell you, I have a little bit of a pulse on what the record might be because I have, I manage the NC Soybean Yield Contest, and none of that information is publicly available yet. We did see some very high yields this summer, and that was from across the state, really. I've seen some very good yield contest entries, not just from the Blacklands, but also the Southern Coastal Plain, as well as the Piedmont. So stay tuned for my answer to that question. Oh, come on. It's just the three of us here. (laughs) I know enough to not get myself in trouble on that one. (laughs) Maybe not. Our deadline for entries is December 10th. People can submit entries up to December 10th that were cut in August. So, I honestly, I don't know at this point. And one of the things I've learned in this position is you got to take the yield contest very seriously. No talking about the yield contest until it's officially all official. You, uh, you occasionally geek out on me, so I'm going to try to geek out on you. Are you ready for the bonus round? All right, let's do it. Here we go. Which was the largest insect pressure this year. Mexican bean beetles, the three-cornered alfalfa hopper, the velvet bean caterpillar, army worms, or the stink bug nymphs. Okay, so luckily I talked to our extension entomologist, Dominic Rising, who's a great colleague, before this interview in preparation, and I was just like, just touching in about general insect pressure this year. And so what insect had heavier than normal pressure bean leaf beetle? Stink bugs and corn earworms, which is our largest insect pest in soybeans in the state, had a below average year. By the way, I will I will mention that I did pick those up off your interactive map off of Beans Gone Wild. Thank you so much. That is one of the things that I was going to shamely plug with y'all. Um, Beans Gone Wild, this was our pilot year for Beans Gone Wild. And for those listeners that aren't familiar, Beans Gone Wild is an interactive map which shows the soybean issues emerging across the state in real time and then catalogs those into a library so anybody new to the industry, student, new crop consultant, new agronomist for a company can go and kind of see what the major issues we encounter are. And Bees Gone Wild in its first year I think was a success. I think there's a lot of interest from other crops 
in sort of doing something similar to Beans Gone Wild, which kind of underscores the interest by growers and other users. If we look at the statistics, we had about 780 individuals use Beans Gone Wild this first year. And we're hopeful next year, as we've kind of gotten our feet under us, we can have a parallel social media presence with Beans Gone Wild, and we'll end up getting more users of the interface as time progresses. No, I was waiting for some more of that technical stuff you were throwing out there, Dan. I, well, I really thought, you know, he's really, he, you know, he's, he's a great study of soybean insects and pests. No, I just, I know the breadcrumbs that Rachel leaves throughout the internet. I wonder why the stink bug was not, we had a lot of stink bug in, in corn this year. I, I, may, I guess maybe they just, corn was the chosen entree rather than soybeans. The good part, obviously, is, uh, is getting them up out of the ground and getting them in the bin or harvested. But the best part is how did they sell? What What are you thinking about pricing this year? And did it hold up pretty good through through harvest time? Yeah, I think pricing has been relatively stable across the state. And I'll say one of the unique things that was an advantage for the growers that were producing earlier maturing varieties this year is we had quite a nice premium being offered across the state for early delivery which was more than the premium I've heard in previous years. So on top of stable prices, I think there's some additional benefits on the front end of the season uh, that producers could capitalize on. As we as we go on, are we seeing more and more folks really focus in on precision planting? That's a great question. You know, if you, I would say for soybeans, it's still a small amount of our acres that are precision planted. If you look at some research that's been done on that topic, including by my program in more more recent years, precision planting in soybean generally has less value than precision planting in corn. Now, if you you bought a precision planter for corn and you're using it for soybeans, that's fine. Because soybeans are so plastic across a wide range of populations, we've seen that seed placement, precision seed placement is less important for soybeans than it is for corn. I mean, I'm sure we're shifting towards that because of the adoption of precision planting in other crops, but um, not a huge shift in our soybean production systems in that direction. I used to see a lot of manganese deficiency in soybeans, and I don't know if that was due to the variety or if there was actually a deficiency. Do you see a lot of that these days? So we will see manganese deficiency, and there are differing levels of variety sensitivity to that issue, but really where we see manganese deficiency is when the pH is high in the soil. And so I wouldn't see we say we see this at a high volume of regularity, but it does happen a few times every year. And for example, where I've seen it more recently is like if a grower used poultry ash uh, as a fertility and lining product on their soil, it drove up pH, caused the manganese deficiency. So we see it when the pH is high, and, and there is differing levels of varietal sensitivity. Unfortunately, in some of my plots this year, actually, had some manganese deficiency. But I wouldn't say it's something we see with, like, a super high level of volume. And also, the nice thing about manganese deficiency is growers can make a foliar manganese application and remedy that issue pretty quickly. Well, let me throw another one out and say potassium deficiency. Yeah, so potassium deficiency is one of the more common macronutrient deficiencies we'll see in soybeans in the state, and it's often worse by year. So I will say, yes, we did see potassium deficiency this year, as you would expect in a dry year, um, 
how dry it is affects potassium's ability to move up into the plant. And, and so, yes, we did see some potassium deficiency this year as well. I'm curious if you do know, have uh, have growers been have increased their soil testing numbers prior to the uh, the the, uh, the freebie deadline cut off, which would be actually the beginning of December. So, do I know the answer to that? No, but I'm going to think it educated yes and say yes. Well, no, I'm just just going to comment. I, I think people are more timely with sampling than they've been in years past. I I just think it's better management. People are more a lot more tuned in. Farmers understand the importance of those soil samples, and they seem to be a lot more aggressive at it than they were in years past. Again, and back in the day, 40 years ago, I was six, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, the soil sampling most of the time fell to me as the guy that was trying to sell fertilizer. Today, obviously, there's a lot, there's a lot more intensity, I think, in, in that management practice, which is good. Uh, and yeah, a lot, I think that's uh, with a lot more precision for soybeans, you know, the fertility emphasis on soybeans has changed pretty drastically over the past couple decades where before it was more of a rotational crop and maybe there was less soil sampling intensity for soybeans. I think that's really shifted and it's definitely a production practice that is highly prioritized by the vast majority of successful farmers. It's all about efficiency. I, again, with the inputs being what they are today, you have to do every, everything you can to make sure what you use is needed. I would just like to highlight that to learn more about what we discussed this morning, but also a lot of other data-driven production recommendations, I want to let the listeners know that the NC Soybean Producers Association and NC Cooperative Extension are piloting a new model of information delivery this winter where we're going to focus on some regional deep dive production meetings. And at these production meetings, we're going to go in depth on certain topics. So that might be stink bugs to one of your questions earlier or precision planning. Um, We're bringing in experts from outside North Carolina in most circumstances to enrich these educational programming events with their perspectives from different parts of the U.S., We're going to have six of these soybean regional deep dive meetings across the state in January and February, and we'd love to see the listeners at these meetings, farmers, individuals in agribusiness, so we can really hone in and focus on the soybean production practices that are most relevant to those areas. And to get more information about that and registering, please visit the NC Soybean Producers Association website. And we will also be disseminating information on those events through cooperative extension. Let me mention, too, since you mentioned the North Carolina Soybean Producers Association, coming up in um, in Durham, January the 11th and 12th, is North Carolina Commodity Conference going to be held at the uh, Sheraton Imperial Hotel there. Corn growers, uh, cotton growers, small grain growers, and North Carolina Soybean Association sponsoring that. A great event. They have really um, put some energy into reinvesting the educational content in that particular conference. We have some really exciting invited speakers coming in, and then also we are trying topics that we focus on from a production standpoint. So the session that I'll be involved in will actually be focused on artificial intelligence in agriculture instead of just soybeans. So we're really excited about that conference and hope to see many of you there. And to the questions earlier, again, the yield contest winners will be announced at that conference and you'll get to find out uh, what the record-breaking yields are there. Gee, that's a tease. (laughs) Thank you, Rachel. 
appreciate the opportunity to catch up with you. Always a pleasure. This is Agriculture. This is Ag and NC on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. Thanks in part to Ag Carolina Farm Credit. Financing rural North Carolina for generations. Lending solutions for farms, land, and homes personalized for you. Ag Carolina Farm Credit, giving you room to grow. This is Agriculture in North Carolina. I'm Dan Miller. Find us online at agnc.com. Bill Carone Cars in Wallace is the only Chevy GM dealer in eastern North Carolina to become an AgPAC dealer, which means any farmer who buys a vehicle at Bill Carone is eligible for more than $30,000 in savings on products I'm sure you already use. Tires, crop products. Check out the advantages of the AgPAC program at Bill Carone Cars in Wallace or online at BillCaroneGM.com. Now let's check last week's commodity prices as they compare to the prior week. February live cattle futures fell 169.12 and a half on the week and lost $1.85. January feeder futures dropped 490 to close at 214.42 and a half for the week. Heavy technical selling pressure was featured in the cattle futures market late last week. Expiring December hog futures edged 17.5 cents lower to 68.60 Friday, while most active February futures led to deferred contracts lower. February hogs ended the week $70.10, marking weekly rise of $1.32.5. The hog market remains seasonally weak, with traders anticipating little in the way of strength before spring. North Carolina weighted average price quoted Thursday, November 30th, for small lot sales of delivered carton grade A eggs was $238.79 for extra large, $231.86 for large, $224.40 for medium, and $141 for small eggs. Number two yellow shell corn prices were down compared to the prior week. Prices ranged mostly 435 to 538 at the feed mills, 415 to 517 at the elevators through Thursday, November the 30th. Number one yellow soybeans averaged 10 cents lower, ranged 1310 to 1357 at the processor, mostly 1245 to 1312 at the elevators. And number two red winter wheat was seven to nine cents lower, ranged 484 to 545 at the elevators. That's this week's Ag and NC. Subscribe to our longer free podcast version, Apple or Spotify or the IBX Media app. Details on all that and links on our website, agandnc.com. Thanks to Ag Carolina Farm Credit, First Choice Insurance Partners, and the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Got to be NC. Agriculture in North Carolina, copyright 2023 Interbanks Media. For Jeff Turner, myself, Dan Miller. Make it a great week.